From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is Monday, July 24th, 2023. I'm Sue Goodwin. And I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Today on the show, how does climate change affect mental health? Plus, ecological side effects of the rush towards a clean energy future and a deep dive on climate finance in Barbados. All that and more. Stay with us. We begin our show today with a week in review, a quick recap of some of the stories that captured our attention last week. A strike by Hollywood actors, a majority of whom earn less than $27,000 a year from on-screen work, wrapped up its first full week on Friday with no end in sight. The work stoppage over issues including pay and the unregulated use of artificial intelligence also involves Hollywood writers who have been on strike since early May. SAG-AFTRA national president Fran Drescher first announced the actor's strike on Friday, July 14th. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. The strike could be a long slog, but union workers are prepared. Actor and SAG member Jason Kravitz took a break from the picket line yesterday to speak to the Associated Press about the uncertainty inherent to his industry. One thing about actors is we're resilient people. I mean, we don't get into this business thinking we're going to be working every day of the year. As a matter of fact, most actors I know going six months without work, including me, is part of the game sometimes. And you don't know year to year whether you're going to be working often or never. You just keep putting yourself out there with auditions and trying to get the work and trying to find as many ways of making work in this business as you can. SAG and the TV and Film Producers Association still seem far from a deal, with a top union negotiator suggesting the strike could last until January or February of next year. Another story that caught our eye was a possible third indictment of former President Donald Trump. Trump last week revealed he had been informed that he is a target in the Justice Department investigation into his efforts to remain in power after losing the 2020 election, a development that could foreshadow additional federal charges against him. Speaking to MSNBC, Representative Zoe Lofgren, who served on the House January 6th committee, gave her reaction to the news. Well, I'm very interested to know the specific charges. As you know, the uh, committee referred several uh, matters, some potential violations of law to the Department of Justice. Uh, It's clear that this has to do with the January 6th misconduct and the events leading up to it. But I'm very curious to find out the details. And I guess some uh, relief that there will be accountability at the very top. Um, You know, we've seen a lot of the rioters themselves prosecuted correctly, been convicted, sentenced to prison. But to date, the people who organized it, who schemed that up, have not been held accountable. And I think it's important that that happen. In international news, Spanish voters cast ballots in an inconclusive national election yesterday, with the country's political right failing to win an expected outright majority in parliament. The conservative popular party won a plurality of votes, and along with its smaller ally, the far-right Vox party, earned 169 seats, just shy of the 175 needed to form a majority government. The incumbent Socialist Party won 122 seats. Both groupings face possible insurmountable odds to form a functioning government. Many political parties would be reluctant to join forces with the far-right Vox, which opposes abortion rights and has denied the fact of climate change. For the socialists, 
a government coalition could mean teaming up with separatist Catalan parties, a potentially unpalatable union for both. Now, Spain faces a possibly long stretch of political uncertainty, with the conservative Popular Party taking the first shot at forming a government. If there is any silver lining in yesterday's election results, it's that the far-right Vox saw its support drop substantially, winning only 33 seats in Parliament, compared to a 52-seat share in an election only a few years ago. The far-right isn't just a problem in Spain, however. This morning, lawmakers in Israel voted to pass part of a deeply unpopular judicial reform after compromise negotiations failed, and after a massive march of protesters reached Jerusalem on Saturday. The group of tens of thousands of marchers stretched for over two miles at one point during its 40-mile and four-night trek from Tel Aviv. Some of the marchers set up camp in Jerusalem in a park below the parliament building. Opposition to the judicial reform, proposed by the right-wing government of Benjamin Netanyahu, isn't just coming from the streets. At least 150 businesses closed today in protest of the reform, and thousands of military reservists have pledged to refuse to serve if the reform passes. The country's largest union, Histadrut, has hinted at a general strike. Even in Parliament itself, opposition lawmakers took to shouting at government officials, calling them, quote, enemies of Israel and, quote, the government of destruction. The vote this morning passed 64 to 0, as opponents boycotted the legislative session. The proposed reform would severely curtail judicial oversight of legislative decisions, a move critics say could deepen corruption. 4,000 miles to the east, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry wrapped up a friendly but largely fruitless trip to China last Wednesday, as he failed to convince China to speed up its transition away from fossil fuels. But even without a concrete agreement, Kerry framed his trip as a success. So we came to uh, Beijing uh, in order to unstick what has been stuck for almost a year. And that's the in-person dialogue between the United States and China. And indeed, uh, we did succeed in having uh, long and uh, very detailed meetings with a lot to catch up on. Uh, we had very frank conversations, but we came here to break new ground, which we think is important at this stage. Uh, and it is clear uh, that we are going to need a little more work to be able to complete that task, which we still believe, both of us, is doable. Relations between the U.S. and China have been on the ropes for years, but a series of high-level official trips to Beijing in recent months has hinted at a possible reduction in tensions over a wide range of issues, from trade and tariffs to security in Taiwan. No official has left Beijing with much in the way of concrete concessions, but a resumption of dialogue is promising. On the climate front, Chinese President Xi Jinping, who did not meet directly with Kerry, said in a speech on climate goals on Wednesday, quote, The pathway and means for reaching this goal, and the tempo and intensity, should be and must be determined by ourselves, and never under the sway of others, end quote. Lastly, extreme heat remained in the headlines last week. Much of the Northern Hemisphere continued to experience record-breaking heat, with scientists warning the pattern is likely to continue next month and beyond. Last week, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released its outlook for August 2023. The agency said last month was the planet's warmest June since global temperature record-keeping began in 1850. The agency also predicts unusually hot temperatures will occur in most of the United States, almost everywhere except the northern Great Plains, during August and into next year. We'll have more on this story in just a moment. Stay with us. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. 
All signs indicate that this will be one of the hottest summers on record. From Death Valley to Xinjiang, China, from Phoenix to Rome, record-breaking temperatures from heat waves are sweeping the world. In addition to the potentially serious physical health consequences of a warming world, climate change can also have significant impacts on mental health. We begin our coverage of that story today with a story we ran in 2018. That's when Monday Morning QB reporter Chris Bangert-Drowns spoke with Christina Dahl, principal climate scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, about the intersection of mental health and climate change. So there's a lot of evidence that there are um, mental health challenges associated with coping with natural disasters. We know from uh, studies that have been done following events like Hurricane Katrina or California wildfires that these mental health uh, issues can be relatively mild, things like uh, stress or anxiety, all the way through clinical disorders such as PTSD. And those can play out in many different ways depending on an individual's um, uh, health status or community status. So, for example, people who are uh, already have a pre-existing mental illness will have a more difficult time coping if a natural disaster hits. Clearly, with climate change, there's going to be an increase in global temperatures, uh, which I'd expect to result in an increase, a concurrent increase in heat-related ailments like heat stroke and dehydration. Um, but in addition to these sort of physical problems, are there mental health issues that will be exacerbated by increases in global temperatures? Absolutely. So we know, as you just mentioned, that during extreme heat events, uh, there is an increase in heat-related mortality and heat-related illness. Here in San Francisco, where I live, we had a major heat wave last year. It's unusual for our part of the country. And emergency room visits uh, doubled during that time. So those, those physical effects of heat are often very visible to us. I think less visible are the mental health consequences of extreme heat. Um, we've, uh, there have been studies that have found that people with pre-existing mental illnesses are particularly vulnerable when it comes to extreme heat, and that the risk of death due to extreme heat exposure is about three times higher for those with mental illness than for those without. So people with these pre-existing uh, mental health conditions, just as people with pre-existing physical health conditions, are, are more at risk of uh, heat-related illness and death. There's also some evidence that suggests that increases in temperatures result in increased rates of suicide and interpersonal violence. In your mind, how significant would the would the impact of an increase in global temperatures be on rates of interpersonal violence? And is there any real threat that increases in global temperatures would instigate larger group-on-group -group conflicts? It's a very interesting question. The, the impact of climate change or climate-related um, events such as heat waves on both interpersonal um, relationships as well as uh, larger group conflicts. There's a really active uh, research community that's looking at whether climate change makes conflict, um, such as uh, the war in Syria, for example, more likely. And I think there's a strong case to be made that that is the case. The, the war in Syria, for example, um, broke out during a period when the country was undergoing a significant drought. And so it's, it's difficult to tease apart exactly uh, what's the cause and what's the effect there and, and the exact role that the drought had to play in, um, in creating conditions that were conducive to conflict. Um, I don't think there's a consensus on that yet, but it's certainly something that scientists are, are looking at. When it comes to those interpersonal relationships, we know from studies of disaster, uh, such as hurricanes, that uh, substance abuse issues tend to spike after such disasters. That can certainly lead to, um, to greater interpersonal conflict. 
That was Chris Banker Drowns in 2018, speaking with Christina Dahl, Principal Climate Scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, about the intersection of mental health and climate change. Since that time, there has been a growing consensus within the mental health community that events brought about by climate change can affect our mental health. And it's not just those who have been directly affected by a climate disaster who are experiencing distress. The very threat of climate disaster can trigger a profound psychological response. It's often called climate anxiety and also referred to as climate distress or echo anxiety, and it can manifest in many ways. To get a better understanding of what that means, we reached out to Joshua Wurzel, M.D. He is a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at Brown University and chair of the American Psychiatric Association's Committee on Climate Change and Mental Health. So people can have a range of responses and they can change over time. People can have sadness and grief as they consider the loss of the environment around them. A term that's been coined as called solastalgia, as based on kind of nostalgia as a root, but the idea that you're missing the world, the environment around your home, which is changing so that it no longer looks like home. So people can have a grief for the loss of the natural world. There's anger, especially among young people, the feeling that adults, society has not been a proper steward for the world. Uh, and that it seems like changes are not being made at a fast enough rate to avert crisis. There are people who feel various levels of anxiety and worry about their children, about their own safety. We're experiencing natural disasters at a rate and intensity, unlike you know, our ancestors have faced in, in a recent time. So I think that there's well-found anxiety as well. But as damaging as this kind of anxiety can be to one's ability to function in daily life, as of yet, the kind of distress described by Dr. Wurzel is not officially recognized as a mental health disorder in the diagnostic manuals relied upon by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other health professionals. And there is an ongoing debate as to whether it should that's because within the field there is a widespread sense that the range of feelings associated with climate distress are in fact a rational response to a growing threat. Basically the idea is that there's clearly catastrophic danger around and then a lot of us go through life where we minimize our emotions and kind of just you know stick our heads in the sand and on one level, you know, we would say if a child is so distressed about climate change that they're having difficulties with their daily life and functioning, isn't that a disorder? And, you know, we can, we can you know, debate how effective it is or how meaningful it is to call it a disorder. But one thing we can say is that they're perfectly rational in feeling like the world is constantly heating around us. We're not doing anything sufficiently to address it. They have a right to be worried. So what we say is that climate distress is a healthy response, it's a normal response to being worried about climate, um, but it can reach levels where people are so distressed about it that they may need clinical support. So whether or not climate anxiety is currently seen as a clinical diagnosis, there is a clear need to support the people that experience it. Another thing we can say for certain is that a lot of people are feeling a sense of anxiety and worry about climate change and its effects. A 2020 survey by the American Psychological Association found that 56% of U.S. adults said climate change is the most important issue facing the world today. And that survey was obviously taken before this year's record-breaking heat. Another finding from the American Psychological Association 
is that nearly half of young adults they surveyed aged 18 to 34 said they felt stress over climate change in their daily lives. And to that point, Dr. Wurzel reminds us of another study done in 2021. Bath University psychotherapist and researcher Carolyn Hickman and her colleagues surveyed 10,000 young people aged 16 to 25 living in 10 different countries about their thoughts and feelings about climate change. And one of the emotions that a lot of young people report having is, is guilt. Guilt about their own use of resources. Yeah, the, the fact that just being alive, one of the, it just another way of reframing this is, um, one of the least sustainable things you can do right now as an adult is have a child. Uh, obviously, I, I'm not endorsing not having children, but I think a lot of young people feel that, that, you know, they are a, just by being alive, they are a drain on the world resources and they're actively contributing to climate change through uh, their existence. And so I think that maybe that's not the leading emotion they have, but, but it's, it's part of what leads to this existential anxiety about just knowing that they're causing the problem by being alive. And that's true for obviously all of us, not just children. There is a growing field of what's called climate-aware therapy. Climate-aware therapists are trained to look for signs of climate-based distress and anxiety and help their patients become more resilient. It's an evolving practice, with therapists still learning what it means. But in terms of the kind of work they do, as Josh Wurzel tells us, some of it is just validation. A lot of young people especially feel like they're they're being, you know, gaslighted. They're 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 kind of being told, Don't worry, everything's gonna be fine when they see the world kind of crashing down around them, at least the way they, they see it. So it's validating and saying you have a right to be worried, you you know, you're you're grappling with a very difficult topic right now. And then there's ways in which you can try to help them cope with that validated worry. Um, a lot of this has to do with ideas taken from DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy, helping people hold two truths that seem at odds at the same time. So, for example, gosh, um, the world is such a dangerous place now. You know, there are natural disasters that could destroy my home and hurt my family. And isn't the world such a beautiful place with you know, wonderful nature that can be inspiring and worth preserving. So holding holding two competing ideas at, at the same time. Um, and then there's things like existential therapy, where we help people focus on trying to have meaning in, in the wake of difficult times. It's actually a theory that came out of Viktor Frankl's work, who had lived through the Holocaust, and how he was able to help people find meaning even in the face of great adversity. And there, there's other ideas too, but just, just in terms of some of the things they work on. When we look at just the, the raw percentages of who seems to be worried about climate change, twice as many young people are worried as adults. That's one thing. Uh, we know, though, that children are also just a more vulnerable population when it comes to adversity. Um, there are uh, something called ACEs, um, which is basically adverse childhood experiences that we know carry long-lasting effects on a person's mental health as they get older. And so we see that as children right now are going through more natural disasters and the existential concerns of climate change, those effects may be more profound than perhaps what an adult might be experiencing. Some of that comes from children being so reliant upon adults as their caregiver and feeling like they have uh, the trust that they're going to be kept safe that's being um, in some ways betrayed by feeling like adults are not doing enough to protect their futures. Um, so there's that psychological piece. And then I think also because children can't care for themselves, we know that they're just more vulnerable in the face of natural disasters. I think UNICEF put out a statistic that by the end of the century, over a billion children or more than, or close to half of all children will be 
extremely affected by the trauma related to natural disasters. That was Joshua Wurzel, MD. He is a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at Brown University and chair of the American Psychiatric Association's Committee on Climate Change and Mental Health. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley has presented a plan to transform the global financial system to support poor countries experiencing the effects of climate change. The proposal is a three-step plan encouraging investment from the private sector for developing nations. Monday Morning QB reporter Asia Beckham has more. Barbados's Prime Minister Mia Motley has championed an initiative to change the world of development finance, to make it easier for poor climate-stricken countries to access capital. While climate change has an impact on nations across the globe, the difference between wealthy countries and poor countries are the resources to respond and rebuild. Low-income countries are forced to borrow the money at a much higher interest rate, about 14%, compared to wealthy countries borrowing at around 1% to 4%. Climate change is threatening the future existence of islands and compounding the debt owed by poor countries. The Barbados-led proposal dubbed the Bridgetown Initiative is a three-step proposal seeking to transform the global finance system that hasn't been updated since the 1940s. Avinash Persoid, Barbados's special envoy for climate finance, shares more about the initiative. Can you share the climate-related challenges that countries are facing Changing climate for us, we see that in rising sea levels. Sea levels will rise by about three quarters of a meter uh, as climate change continues. We see it in a drier, dry season and a wetter, wet season as big impact on our agricultural production, on flooding and drainage. The Bridgetown Initiative will provide access to cheaper finance for us to build resilience to these things. But I also think the question misses the point a little because climate is a bit like pandemics it's not something that individual countries can do on their own we can't carve out a part of the climate that is somehow different than the rest of the world we can't carve out a part of our country that's different from a uh, different in a pandemic from from the rest of the island climate and pandemics they are problems which are indivisible we have to act collectively. We have to act collectively, think collectively. And the Bridgetown Initiative is a, is a global plan. It's a plan for the planet to deal with climate change. And so, yes, it impacts us. But, you know, three quarters of it doesn't impact us directly because it's about the rest of the world. And the rest of the world are often in a very different situation than us. I think we All of us in Barbados started becoming more conscious of the changing climate after that horrible 2017 hurricane season. Remember Maria and Irma, we had two Category 5 hurricanes. Uh, And and those of us with family in other islands, and and in my case, um, uh, she was then opposition leader, but she encouraged me to go to Dominica. Uh, Mia Motley encouraged me to go to to Dominica to try and support their recovery, their economic recovery from Hurricane Maria. And then I think it really dawned upon us what was happening with the climate and the fiscal problems. You know, over 50 percent, half of the increase of our debt in the past 20 years has related to dealing with the environment, dealing with the natural disaster costs. I'm talking about the region as a whole. Um, And so we became much more conscious and realizing that we need to build resilience and we need to we need the world to change we 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 are canaries in the mine we're watching the other canaries dying off and it you know either we try to fight for a bit of breath uh, fresh air for ourselves or we try and fix the mine that's the only long-run solution 
Prime Minister Motley made some major speeches at the United Nations uh, in the end of 2021. A major speech at the COP, the Conference of Parties event where all the countries come together to talk about climate. And people were excited about it. Here, let's take a listen to Prime Minister Motley during that engagement. Than when the United Nations was formed in 1945. But then the majority of our countries here did not exist. We exist now. The difference is we want to exist a hundred years from now. And if our existence is to mean anything, then we must act in the interests of all of our people who are depending on us. And if we don't, we will allow the path of greed and selfishness to sow the seeds of our common destruction. The leaders of today, not 2030, not 2050, must make this choice. It is in our hands. And our people and our planet need it more than ever. We can work with who is ready to go because the train is ready to leave. And those who are not yet ready, we need to continue to ring circle and to remind them that their people not our people, but their citizens need them to get on board as soon as possible. Code red, code red to the G7 countries. Code red, code red to the G20. Earth to cop, that's what it said. Earth to cop. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees, yes, SG, is a death sentence for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, for the people of the Maldives, for the people of Dominica and Fiji, for the people of Kenya and Mozambique, and yes, for the people of Samoa and Barbados. We do not want that dreaded death sentence. And we've come here today to say, try harder, try harder. Because our people, the climate army, the world, the planet, needs our actions now, not next year, not in the next decade. Thank you. You One of the main points that that, uh, Prime Minister made is that people say climate change is difficult, it's costly, but you know, we just come back from a global financial crisis, from a pandemic, and the rich countries had effectively printed $24 trillion of cash to buy their own bonds back from the marketplace, to buy their own bonds from their people. So in buying the bonds, they gave cash to the marketplace. And that helped to revive their economies and protect them from COVID. We, we weren't able to do that because we, we don't have a currency we can print uh, without that causing uh, huge economic problems. But they did that. The rich countries did that. $24 trillion. And the powerful message she made at the United Nations uh, and at COP was that, you know what, if they hadn't just bought back any bonds, but they bought back government bonds that financed the the green transformation, that financed mitigation and resilience against climate change, we would be halfway through defeating climate change already in just 10 years. So that this issue wasn't so much about money. We have the money. It's about political will. And we've already started seeing some change, uh, some of the, uh, the changes that we've asked for. Let me briefly describe the plan and then talk to you a bit about what's moving. We need the world to transform a green transformation. All the things we do need to be powered off renewable energy. Now, we know in Barbados, solar, but of course, there's wind, there's hydroelectric, there's waste to energy, there's biogas. We need to move our entire energy generation to a renewable space. We need to be focusing on producing things that don't cause great emissions in the atmosphere. That, it has been estimated, will cost $2 trillion. Now, when you get up after a billion, people find it hard in their minds to think 
2,000 billion. I think the way to think about uh, that is that all of the aid, all of the aid given to the poorest countries in the world uh, on anything from from water, from uh, dealing with uh, trying to address health problems, education problems, all of the aid in the entire world is $200 billion a year. So what we need for this green transformation is 10 times all of the aid in the world. It's a big number. And we've come up with a plan of how to get to that number. And the plan is basically saying, imagine three buckets. The first bucket, the biggest bucket, is a bucket of all those things in the green transformation. Things like a solar farm or a wind farm or a hydroelectric power station. We need to find ways in which we can we can excite the private sector to be investing their cash in developing countries. And that is perhaps around providing some guarantees against risks. So we have a plan that will mean that people don't need to worry about foreign exchange risk, the value of the currencies going up and down. That bucket's also got things like sustainable agriculture, shifting towards an agriculture which is not a using up the natural resources. Uh, and that also generates money. Sustainable agriculture makes money. Uh, we, we can get people involved in that without government money having to be spent to, to fill that bucket. Second bucket, not as big as the first, this is about things for which there, there's no revenues, but they're savings. When we uh, designed and built the, the upgrading culverts and the, uh, the, the new uh, drainage systems in Trents and Holtown, it helped to reduce some of the damage that we had uh, from the regular flooding. Uh, it's still a difficult place, but we've reduced a lot of the damage. That means that we could borrow money to build those defenses and use the savings to pay back the borrowing. And so this next bucket is about, let's find ways of borrowing cheaply to build resilience to climate change today. Not build resilience in 10 years time, there's no point waiting 10 years, we need resilience today. Uh, and so uh, the second bucket is about how the, 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 the international development banks, the World Bank, the the Inter-American Development Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, how they can have the resources to lend to countries like ourselves. 50-year money, not 10-year money, not 20-year money, 50-year money with very low rates of interest in order for us to build resilience. And there's a, a third bucket. We've kept that bucket as small as possible, but it's still the most difficult bucket to fill. This is... You know, what happens to a country after a devastating hurricane? This is reconstructing from loss and damage uh, from climate. Uh, no revenues, no savings. And we're saying that bucket needs to be filled by the international community raising new money. Maybe that's new levies and new taxes. Maybe it's on the export of oil. Maybe it's on when ships emit uh, lots, of, um, uh, lots of carbon and there's a tax on those emissions. Uh, and, and we've come up with a couple taxes on those emissions, on those exports that will fill that third bucket. We've, we've filled the bucket with revenues, filled the bucket with savings and filled that tiny, hard, not so tiny, but smaller, hard to fill bucket with some new taxes. And that is the Bridgetown Initiative. As the climate crisis worsens, countries and companies are scrambling to find and extract the resources necessary for a green energy future. This resource extraction presents its own environmental complications, with habitat destruction a seeming inevitable consequence of mining for key metals, including lithium and cobalt. And this isn't only true above ground. A United Nations agency tasked with overseeing deep-sea mining projects late last week postponed a decision to issue permits, 
after pressure from environmental activists over the possible destruction of seabed and other ocean ecosystems. Deep-sea mining is so far a limited endeavor, with companies focused on the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, a strip of remote ocean east of Hawaii, where the Canadian Metals Company hopes to begin extraction with UN approval. But the practice could become widespread as the demand for clean energy metals grows. To better understand the ecological consequences of deep-sea mining, Monday Morning QB was joined last week by Emily Jeffers, senior attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity. Jeffers explains why scientists know relatively little about seabed floor habitats and what that means for decisions to begin mining. Yeah, deep sea mining, I mean, you know, as your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, it happens in the deep sea. So it's pretty far. It's very remote. It's not like a place where you or I could go visit. Um, It's a very difficult place to do any research or any science. So there just hasn't been a lot of exploration in terms of what's down there. How does this ecosystem function? What would happen if the ecosystem were to change as a result of deep sea mining? So there's just very little information. They're constantly discovering new species. I know in the Clarion-Clipperton zone, like a recent uh, research discovered 5,000 new species previously undescribed to humankind. So it's, it's really at the forefront of scientific exploration. There have been some studies showing, I think it, maybe it was in the 80s, there was a test of um, like scraping the seafloor in the Clarion-Clipperton zone. And then they, you know, see, see what happens. And then 40 years later, they come back and it looks exactly the same. There's no repopulation of that environment. A lot of the species down there are, they don't move, you know, they're corals and sponges and um, other organisms that stay still, or they're very, very, very small. And so as a result of mining, that would release a huge sediment plume. They, they can be smothered and they're also very, very old. Some of the corals and sponges are four, five, ten thousand years old. So any um, disturbance of their habitat or of them themselves, you know, by deep sea mining, you're really basically just vacuuming out the entire seafloor. It's going to take a really long time for that ecosystem to repair itself. It's my sense that there are multiple kinds of mining techniques involved in in deep sea mining, depending on the kinds of materials being sought. What are these different kinds of techniques and are there differential impacts, right? Is, is there one technique or another that's maybe less destructive? So the minerals on the seafloor, there are different ways that they're described. There are these polymetallic nodules that basically look like giant pebbles or golf balls or sometimes even like small boulders that are on the seafloor and, and, and slightly within the sediment. And I'd say that's maybe, you know, six inches, they, the way to that they mine that at least theoretically is they just scrape off like the bottom of the ocean, all of it. They just scrape it off and then they bring everything that they've scraped off up to a vessel on the surface of the ocean and where they filter out all the sediment from the metals that they're trying to get. And then that sediment just falls back through the ocean, through the, you know, the midwater and, and back down. And so there's sediment and sediment plumes that result from that, both from the initial mining of the floor and then from releasing the sediment plumes from the vessel. And so those sediment plumes are going to really disrupt um, photosynthesis, you know, light because they're, they can travel, scientists estimate that they could, these plumes could form over hundreds of kilometers as they filter back down. They can smother organisms at the seafloor who haven't been, you know, sucked up by these mining operations. And they could also unearth uh, metals that could bioaccumulate in various organisms, including tuna, which are predicted to be migrating towards the clarion Clipperton zone as a result of climate change. So that's one type, I'd, I'd say, of mining. The other one is there are these crusts. They're maybe four centimeters thick on the bottom of the ocean. And it's the same idea. They just scrape off the crust of the, of the ocean. Um, and then the hydrothermal vents are things that I'm sure people are familiar with, seeing pictures from National Geographic or, or what have you. And those are really hot spots of biodiversity because there are just amazing fish and you know these tubular worms and all kinds of critters that hang out there. So I 
don't know exactly how those are harvested, but I think that they just like remove the vents because that's where all the um, metals have accumulated. You talked about sediments, which are causing various kinds of toxicity problems, light problems. There's also noise pollution. In addition to these direct harms to sea life, you also mentioned possible indirect harms to the food supply, right? Tuna subject to toxic metals. What are some of the public health issues broadly with deep sea mining, but then particularly with contamination of of the food supply? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, And something that we don't really know a lot about yet, because, you know, we, we haven't had a chance to study it. But as you mine the deep sea, it's going to release metals and those metals will be adhered to the sediment that then are, you know, dispersed throughout the water column. They will contaminate initially, you know, single cell organisms, but move up the food chain to fishes and, and larger species. So, you know, tuna right now, I think everyone knows that there you have to be careful about your consumption of tuna because of mercury and other heavy metals. It's going to just exacerbate that concern. And are there potential differential impacts, globally speaking, certain communities or regions being more harmed by this contamination of food supply? Well, I imagine that that communities that rely on their protein from the ocean, it's going to affect them more. And also it's going to affect those nations that are closer to the areas that are mined on the high seas. And it's also, it's an issue of environmental justice because who are the companies and who are the countries who are benefiting from this exploitation of our natural resources? And then who are the communities that are bearing all the brunts and the costs of this, of this mining? And that's a question that I know the International Seabed Authority, I don't know if they've really wrestled with it, and it's cause for alarm, and it's caused a lot of scientists and companies like Google and Patagonia and some countries, even Germany, and I know a few other countries have asked for a moratorium on deep seabed mining until we have a better understanding of, of the environment and the impacts of this practice and also how we're going to deal with the outcome and, and the harms on an international scale. Clearly, we're in the midst of a, of a climate crisis caused by greenhouse gas emissions. And I, I'd imagine that we wouldn't have a fleet of, say, electrified, clean, uh, deep sea mining uh, vehicles. Is, is there a cause for concern that deep sea mining will contribute substantially to greenhouse gas emissions? And even if not, is there a chance of fuel leakages kind of similar to oil platform problems that we've, we've seen elsewhere? Um, I don't think that that is, right now, I don't think that's a a major concern. You know, if you talk to, for example, the metals company, which is one of the big proponents of deep sea mining, and they're the ones that have submitted their application with the ISA that kicked off this two-year rush to finalize environmental regulations, and not just them, but a lot of people rightly point out that we need a lot of these rare earth materials for renewable energy technologies. And it's really, really destructive to get those materials on land. Everyone knows what's going on in the Congo in terms of all the things that are happening there to get cobalt and and potentially the deep sea is another way to extract those minerals with less environmental impact. And so I, I think that a lot of these companies see this as a way to combat the climate crisis. Their heart is in the right place, I think, but I also think that they aren't necessarily thinking about what this means in 100 200, 300 years, and how this is going to change the ocean in ways that we don't understand. There's also questions that haven't really been explored about carbon sequestration in the deep ocean and how mining would release some of the carbon and potentially offset the gains that they're attempting to make in terms of promoting renewable energy. So I think it's a really complicated question. That's that's something that folks need to wrestle with, you know, how much are we willing to sacrifice these pristine environments to proceed with the green energy revolution? And is this the right way to do it? Lastly, it, it appears that this International Seabed Authority that we've, we've talked about is in the middle of a process to determine whether or not to issue deep sea mining permits with a decision possibly coming as soon as this Monday. I think they're in the middle of a two-week conference that started earlier this month. We've already seen Canada come out calling for a moratorium on permitting for some of the reasons that we've talked about, a lack of information on the impacts to deep sea ecosystems. Are you anticipating a particular decision one way or the other from the UN? And if permits are authorized by this agency, 
What are next steps for organizations like yours that care about biodiversity? Yeah, so the the process of the, the ISA to sort of formalize environmental regulations regarding deep sea mining started almost 10 years ago, and I don't anticipate that they're going to have anything finalized by Monday. It's a really long and complicated process. Um, in March, the last time they met, they hadn't gotten very far, so I don't think that they're going to start issuing exploration permits even though a lot of folks are anticipating that or hoping for that, um, I think they're going to punt. But, you know, it's, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> just wanted to follow up on that. If, if permits are eventually authorized, are there ways that activist organizations or advocacy groups can work to mitigate the harms even after mining has started or, or permits have been doled out? Well, a lot of companies have expressed their concern about deep sea mining and said that we are not going to procure any minerals that are obtained from the deep sea. A lot of NGOs and a lot of individual scientists have uh, written to the ISA saying we need a moratorium on this practice. And I think that that is momentum that we need to keep up and let the International Seabed Authority know that folks are watching. And even though this is a very remote some people think like out of sight, out of mind. People do care about the deep sea and they do care about this ecosystem and the way that it affects the ocean and, and more broadly all of humanity, really, because the ocean is you know 70% of our earth. And if we do things that we don't understand and it disrupts an equilibrium that we don't understand, I think we'll all be paying the price. That's Emily Jeffers, senior attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity. To learn more, visit biologicaldiversity.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And that's our show for today. Rest in peace and power, Askia Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Join us again next Monday morning and visit WPFWFM.org to become a sustainer of this great radio station. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington.